Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we began our look at the prosecution's direct examination of their expert witness, Dr. Lewis Schlesinger. On today's installment, we continue that exploration. That's all coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's mid-afternoon on April 7th, 2022. As we ended our last episode, the state's rebuttal expert witness, Dr. Lewis Schlesinger, had concluded a recitation of his experience in the field of forensic psychology, as led by questioning from prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn. After the defense offered no objection to Dr. Schlesinger's qualifications, Judge Stephen Taylor qualified him as an expert witness. Today we continue our look at the prosecution's direct examination of Dr. Schlesinger, with Shellhorn leading the witness into a rebuttal of the testimonies of defense experts, Drs. Simring and Hassan. Doctor, is there any difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist in a forensic setting? Uh, yes, yes, there is, there is a difference. There's a difference in training. A psychiatrist after college goes to medical school and studies medicine, and then he or she does a four-year residency in psychiatry, where they study, you know, diagnosis, DSM, and usually treatment with medication. Not all the time, but usually treatment with medication and, and some uh, psychotherapy. A psychologist after uh, college goes to graduate school for four or five, six years, depending upon their uh, program and their how they get through it, and gets training in behavioral science and, and psychopathology, diagnosis, evaluation, and, and uh, testing and uh, treatment and so on. And then a psychologist does um, a clinical internship, a pre-doctoral internship, and then he does at least a year of postdoctoral supervision or more. Psychologists and psychiatrists train together. I mean, I've been trained by psychiatrists. Dr. Rebich was a mentor of mine, and he was my, uh, he's a psychiatrist, he was my main teacher. So I've been trained by psychiatrists, but I, I taught at the medical school for years. Um, I taught undergraduates, that's medical students, they're called undergraduates in medicine for years. Um, I taught interviewing with, uh, with them, uh, testing, I said, with the third year medical students, and with uh, psychiatry residents, I uh, supervised them with their experience at the substance abuse unit, and specifically with group therapy and evaluation with respect to substance abuse. In addition, psychologists and psychiatrists practice together all the time. I practiced for 25 years 
with a psychiatrist in Summit, Sergio Estrada. You know, we each had our patients. He did medication. I did psychotherapy. I did evaluations for him. Um, it's, a, it's a great collaboration. So, uh, and I've worked with him and, and throughout, in very, very, very collegially. That's the difference, basically. Doctor, in this case, were you asked to see and examine Michael Barrison? Uh, yes. You see Mr. Barrison in court? I think that's Michael sitting next to his attorney, although I will say he looks very different than when I saw him. Can you describe uh, what's different about him? Well, when I saw him, he was well-groomed and looked appropriate, and, and now he looks long, disheveled hair. I, I, that's not how he looked when I saw him. Do you recall approximately when you saw him? Um, I saw him exactly on January 29th, uh, March 12th, and April 29th, 2021, last year. And, Doctor, are you referring to a copy of your report? Yes. Judge, I'm just going to indicate for the record that that was marked as S404 for purposes of the record. All right. Very good. Doctor, when you were first asked to see and examine Michael Barrison, uh, what did you do first? Well, first I did psychological. But before I saw him, I familiarized myself with the discovery. And, and that's, that's what you have to do. A, for, a forensic assessment has three parts. The facts of the case that you get from the discovery. The discovery is the police reports and witness statements and all the rest. The second part of a forensic assessment is the psychopathology. Is there a disorder? What's the disorder? And so on. And the third part is that the jury will take the facts and the disorder and relate it to a legal standard, whatever that is. Now, in this case, uh, you indicated that you did review discovery and that that's an important part of the process. Uh, do you recall what discovery you reviewed? I reviewed the complete state's case, everything. There was thousands and thousands of pages of text messages and everything. And, and there were um, videos, you know, recorded statements. I was just going to ask you, did, did you watch or listen to any of the recorded witness statements? Yes, some were video statements, some were just uh, audio, but I, I, I listened to everyone, yes. Why would you listen to the statements or watch the statements as opposed to relying on a summary or a report? Well, you could read the summary in the report, too. A lot of the statements are summarized in the police report, but that's not the way to do it. You want to see that that's some person saying what they found to be significant. And you you are obligated to look at it yourself and make your own determination and get and get a you know get a, a look at what the person said in whole not just a summary of what the person said did you also review any reports that were authored by any psychiatrist hired by the defendant yes and that was that dr simmering dr simmering do you know dr simmering i know dr simmering very well i've known dr simmering for over 30 years i have the highest regard for dr simmering he's a friend of mine dr simmering is competent he's experienced He's intelligent, he's funny, and he's, and he's an extremely nice guy, which I think I said to you at least 50 times. And I've worked with Dr. Simmering on cases. I've worked opposite Dr. Simmering on cases. I referred cases to Dr. Simmering. He's referred cases to me. I have the highest regard for Dr. Simmering. But I disagree with him in this case, but that has nothing to do with my high regard for Dr. Simmering. Have you agreed with him in certain cases? Yes. Okay. And have you disagreed with him in certain cases? Yes. Do you know how much time you spent with Michael Barrison in this case? Yes, I spent 13.25 hours, 13 and a quarter hours. And I think I meant to ask you, and I'm not sure if I did, were you aware of Dr. Simring's diagnoses in this case? Yes. And that's why you said you disagree with him in this case? Correct. Now, you indicated that you met with Michael Barrison and that he looked different when you met him. Yes. Uh, what was his demeanor when you met with him? Well, when I first met with him, he was very, very tearful. I mean, he was crying uncontrollably. He almost at times was hard to console him. He was very upset about the whole thing. And 
if I could just refer to my report, yeah, he was tearful, emotional, crying. He became animated at times, particularly when discussing Lauren and Robert Goodwin and the whole circumstances uh, with respect to that. Uh, he would stand up, get animated, and so on. He was very emotional about it. Yeah, he did that. But after I ca he calmed down and he participated fine, he was cooperative, completely answered my questions, except for some resistance towards the end. Now, how would you describe his ability to recount certain things that happened? Michael's memory from as to what happened was excellent. He, I spent hours with him, I think over six hours, maybe, talking about what had happened. He gave me a day-by-day -day account of the activities that happened. Sometimes it was an hour-by-hour -hour account. Now, occasionally he would say, well, on July 24th, we, uh, you know, I woke up and I did this. Oh, oh by the way, there's some, something happened on July 23rd, and then he would go back to that. But that's normal. That's how, that's how people remember things and recall things. But he remembered in great detail everything. I was very impressed by his um, memory. How would you describe his concentration during the times that you met with him? When I was with him, his concentration was basically okay. I was with him for hours and hours at a time. Now, he was emotional, he was crying and so on, but he, he, was, he was okay. His concentration was basically okay. What would you say was the most outstanding clinical feature that you observed? It was his crying and, and his being so upset about the, uh, about the whole thing. He's extremely emotional and, and, um, and animated. That was the most outstanding feature. Uh, other than that, no, he was, he was pleasant. He was pleasant to deal with, pleasant to talk to. He was very appropriate, nothing bizarre or unusual in his demeanor, other than what I just said or what he said. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After Dr. Schlesinger finishes describing the demeanor and mental state of Michael Barrisone during their meetings, Prosecutor Shellhorn next prompts the witness to offer the jury a more general sense of his approach to preparing a psychological assessment in a criminal case. Now, you described uh, in general what a forensic evaluation or examination entails. How do you look at criminal behavior? Criminal behavior is best understood in three stages. The pre-crime context. Criminal behavior doesn't come out of nowhere. There's a, there's a context to understand it. Then there's the actual offense itself, and then there's the post-crime behavior. And that's really the best way to understand, uh, from my perspective, from a psychological perspective, criminal behavior. And how do you uh, learn that? Well, you learn that from the discovery. You don't learn that from what the defendant tells you. You learn that from the discovery. I should correct myself. A very nuanced thing that I just want to say a little bit different. Y yes, he told me what happened on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, sometime basis. But I, I want to emphasize that's his perception of what happened. I don't know if everything he told me is exactly correct, but that's what his perception was of it. But yeah, yes. And I think you, you described earlier, Doctor, you started to talk about the way memory works. And can you explain a little bit more about that in light of your last answer? 
Well, memory is not, there's no video camera inside here that makes a videotape of what goes on. Memory is a constructive process. We construct our memory. If somebody asks you, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? You'll probably give them an answer, but it's constructed. It's not that you necessarily have an exact memory of it. It's, you know, yeah, very little time what you think, and then you'll uh, and then you construct memory. That's the way human memory uh, works. And you have, you know, you can have an event. I mean, you see this in, in legal practice all the time, not necessarily criminal, say an accident. Three people look at an accident and three people give statements. Are those three statements going to be exact? No, they're not going to be exact. They're, that's how they perceive it. People perceive things differently based on many factors. And if people perceive things differently, does that mean that one or more of them is having a delusion? Absolutely not. Doctor, you indicated that you, uh, as part of your examination, gave the defendant some psychological tests. Yes. And I think you you outlined those beginning on page 50 in your report. Okay, just give me a, a second, please. Yes. Before we get there, can I ask you, how do you choose what tests you're going to use in a forensic examination? Yeah. I give psychological testing to, every, I won't say every single person, but I would say 99.99% of the people I give a standard battery of psychological testing to. I give the Rorschach, the thematic apperception test, the Bender Gestalt, projective figure drawings, the MMPI-2, and a version of the Wexler scales. That's an intelligence test. If the case requires, I'll add additional tests. Tests for malingering mental disorders, for example. Tests for malingering memory, for example and other types of tests as well. But I give that standard battery to everybody. Why? I just want to get a measure. I want to get a baseline measure uh, of the individual. And when I start my evaluation in the forensic case, I start with psychological testing. I don't start with, what did you do? Uh, what happened? No, I start with that because it's, a, it's a sort of a breaks the ice, you know, and some simple tests and it's a rapport builder and this type of thing. So that's what I do. Now, in this case, did you give the defendant any tests related to intellectual uh, examination. Yes. What did you give him? I gave the Wexler Abbreviated Scale of Intelligence. The Wexler Abbreviated Scale of Intelligence is an abbreviated intelligence test that has a 0.93 correlation with the complete Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale revised. It means you're tapping essentially the same thing. Now, why did I give him the abbreviated test rather than the full Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale? But very simple. Intelligence is not an issue in the case, meaning intelligence is not an issue before the court. If intelligence was an issue before the court, for example, the issue is competency to stand trial based on limited intelligence, not necessarily intellectual disability, borderline intelligence, so on, then you're obliged to give the full test. If it was competency to waive your Miranda rights based on intelligence, if it's a social security disability evaluation, for example, and intelligence is an issue, then uh, yes. But, there, but in this particular case, Michael is an highly intelligent individual. He ran a very complicated business with lots of moving parts. Um, he had a location in New Jersey, he had a location in Florida. There was a lot of people that were employees. There were students and trainees there. There were animals there, horses. There was all kinds of consultants coming in, horseshoe people and veterinarians and whatnot. He said these monthly expenses like $36,000 a month. That's a lot of money. That's a, a, a very big and complicated business. He's highly intelligent. Intelligence is not an issue in this case. Prior to seeing him, I also read Dr. Simring's report, who described him as highly intelligent. Uh, and I gave some weight to that as well. Um, so there's no need 
in my judgment, to do anything beyond what I did. Now, after giving him that test, did that corroborate what your impression was going in? Yes. Let me uh, refer to my report on page 50. I found his um, full-scale IQ, it's his intelligence quotient, 119. That's the highest end of average, just one point below superior. His verbal comprehension index is 120. That's superior. And his perceptual reasoning index is uh, 112. This is all above average intelligence. There's nothing wrong with Michael's intelligence, nothing. He's an intelligent individual. Did you give him any tests related to personality function? Uh, yes. I know you had already said you give a standard battery of tests. What in general are the personality functioning tests looking for or looking at? Well, you're, uh, generally you're looking at personality from different perspectives, from different ways. I gave him the Rorschach, I gave him the thematic apperception test, the MMPI-2, and projective figure drawings. And there's a combination here of projective tests, the MMPI, which is a more objective, let's say quantitative test, um, as well. And I know you said you give some of these tests to establish a baseline, but what specifically do you hope to learn by giving these tests that would have value to your entire examination? Sure. Well, the Rorschach, for example, has been around since the 1920s. This is an excellent test if used properly. It's a very good test to determine reality contact, reality testing. For example, you show a card, and some of these cards look like bat and butterflies. I mean, that's everybody kind of, I think, knows that from the media and whatnot. So a, a, a person says to you, it looks like a bat, a butterfly, or some sort of winged creature. That's pretty good reality testing. What if a person says to you, it looks like an enemy? Well, that's not, that's not typical. And that gives you some insight into that. It's very good to determine if there's a thinking disorder, a formal thought disorder. Does the person say, for example, it looks like a bat because here's the wings, here's the body, here's the antenna, here's the feet. That's very logical thinking. What if a person says to you, it looks like a bat because of that white dot right in the middle. What, bats have white dots. That's showing a, a disorder of thought. They're drawing a giant conclusion based on a tiny bit of information. That's a red sign. What if a person says, it looks like a bat, response one. It looks like two alligators over here on the end, response two. That's fine. What if a person says, it looks like a bat with alligators attached to its wings? Now that's a thinking disorder. That's a problem with thinking. You're putting parts of reality together that should be kept separate. And so some of those are some of the things you get from the Rorschach. The Rorschach is also very good to give you personality structure. How strong or weak is the underlying personality structure. For example, when you go to buy a house, you hire a structural engineer, not just to look at what the painting is outside, but to, you know, go take those tiles, you know, off with a flashlight to see what the structure is, to see how strong the house is. The Rorschach is a very good test to determine whether the structure is the level of a personality disorder, a more severe structural disorganization, schizophrenia, or something like that. Um, so it's a, it's a very good test if used properly. Now, before I ask you about the Rorschach in this specific uh, case, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about the Rorschach itself. Are there more than one testing uh, or, or uh, scoring system? Yes, there's been a number of scoring systems used over the years. Rorschach himself, it's Rorschach because that's his name, Herman Rorschach. He had his own system. Another guy named Samuel Beck had a system. Uh, Bruno Klopfer had a system. 
Zygmunt Piotrowski had a system. There's a whole bunch of these systems. I trained on the Beck system, but I switched to Klopfer because it's much better clinically. I think it's actually the best. What happened in the uh, mid-1970s to, um, to the 1980s, a guy named John Exner came around and created uh, his own system. He called it the comprehensive system. Why? He said, well, all these systems are good. I'm going to put it all together, and I'm going to make it in a very quantitative fashion. It sounded good, and everybody was interested in that. Now, I had training on the Exner system from John Exner. How? Because back in, I, I can't remember if it was 79, 80, or 81 when I was the VA, John Exner came there. He was promoting his system all around the country, and he's a good marketer. He really, really is good. And he gave a series of lectures, maybe five, I don't think it was more than five, five two-hour lectures, to go over his system. But I never liked it. Now, now why didn't I like it? Not because I'm so smart, because I'm not. But what he was doing is he was making the Rorschach, which is a projective test, something that it's not. It was never really intended to be that. But okay, he wanted to do it in a quantitative way. The system really became very, very popular throughout the world, particularly in the 1980s and the 1990s, and, and, and schools were teaching this, and workshops were given all over the world, and computer printouts and books and all the rest of it. The problem began in the mid-1990s where it was determined that there was a lot of problems with the test in terms of its validity. Now, I should say this also. Exner put together what he called the Exner Research Council, that members of the Research Council are, were top, still are, they're all alive, top-notch people who did research and promoted this and did workshops and so on. Greg Meyer is one, Joni Mahura is another one, Don Viglione is another one, Phil Erdberg is a fourth, there's one other person I can't remember. And, when, and these are top-notch people. And when they started hearing this, that there's problems with the system, they thought initially, maybe this is one-off. Uh, and then more, more problems came. And then by around 2000, it just became untenable. And John Exner died, I think it was 2006, it was about 15 years ago. And I, I asked, I mean, one of the people on, on the Exner Research Council is a good friend of mine, Phil Erdberg. So I asked him, did you wait the Exner to die before you, before you completely, and they, they laughed. I never got an answer, but I think I know the answer. Anyway, they decided, they did research on their own, and they said, this can't go on. And they published a, a meta-analysis, a META. A meta-analysis is an analysis of analyses. And they published it in a prestigious journal called Psychological Bulletin. And a couple of other journals as well that really talked about the problems in the journal. That it's just, and, and the problems were two. There's problems with the normative data and the validity data. The normative data means how the test was normed by Exner. He didn't do... He didn't collect information and send it out for the peer review process. He didn't do that. He collected information and put it in his book and said, these are the norms. Well, that's a problem. And the validity uh, data as well. Now, I gave you a number of articles on that. Now, I didn't follow all of the details of the problems with the Exner system because I don't use it. I knew that there was a problem with it because I, Phil Erdberg's a friend of mine. We discussed it and, and, and so on. And to be very direct, a lot of people that promoted this were quite embarrassed when this started happening because don't forget, they were spending years of their professional career teaching this, promoting it, and so on. And so what the Exner Research Council did after they published a series of articles concluding that it's not a valid system of scoring and he shouldn't use it. Now, I want to make something clear. This is not my opinion. This is not an opinion. This is a conclusion reached 
by the Exner Research Council, those individuals closely connected with Exner and the, and the system. They decided to put together, uh, and they were committed to a quantitative approach to Rorschach, and they put together a new system. They tried to redo it. They thought first, maybe we could redo it, cut this. They said it was just not salvageable. And so they put together a new system called the Rorschach Performance Assessment System. And I think I gave you a manual. Um, and all the people listed there are all the people on the Exner Rorschach Council. You have another question? Yes, Judge. All right, we're getting a little too narrative here. Ask well, I had asked him about the, the different scoring systems it, and it, about the Exner system. Right. We heard a lot okay. about that yesterday. Well, no, I, I, I understand. Move on at this yeah, point. Just ask another question to follow up if you need to. Doctor, at some point, were you uh, made aware that another doctor named Dr. Charles uh, Hassan had examined the defendant in this case? Uh, yes. And were you provided with a copy of his report? Yes. Are you aware whether or not he administered the Rorschach test to Michael Barrison? Uh, yes, he did. Uh, no, he didn't. Okay, wait, wait, just give me a second. I I'll see you're a little bit distracted. I'll yeah. wait until... No, he did not administer uh, the Rorschach to him. He used my Rorschach findings and said he rescored it using the Exner system. And he submitted it to the Exner computer program, which is still there. I should say, the, you can still get this, obviously. It's run now by Exner's daughter. Uh, she's not a psychologist, and she works with a psychologist in Europe, France, Europe, and France, I think it's France, and Japan. And so you can still get this. So yes, I, I'm aware of that. He didn't, he didn't administer it to him, he rescored it using the Exner system. Now you said that you used the Clopper system. Correct. Um, what were your results after uh, scoring Michael Barrison's Rorschach with the Clopper test? Well, again, it's not just the, see, that's another problem. That's not just the scoring system. I, you know, I heard so much, you know, about scoring systems. The, the, you know, the Rorschach is not just wedded to a scoring system. It's how I explained it before. So my findings from the Rorschach, I found that there was inner anxiety, conflict, and tension, problems relaxing. There were a number of what's called achromatic perceptions. There was attention to the, um, it looks like a, a bat because it's black, using black color, which is a marker for um, depression or depressive vulnerability. So he has symptoms, depression, anxiety. He's not withdrawn from the outside world. His inner life is dominated somewhat by impulsive tendencies and there's some form of acting out uh, likely there. His responses that he gave were well connected to the stimulus material. His reality testing was completely intact. There's no evidence of a thought, a formal thought disorder. His thinking was clear and logical. There's nothing suggestive of schizophrenia, psychosis, or even borderline traits. He gave two slightly regressive perceptions, and that's you know, throwing paint, fireworks, that type of thing. And it's very, very consistent with you find in individuals who have a personality disorder. Those were the responses. In my report, I concluded exactly on page 52 what his responses were. They're logical, well-formed, well-connected to the stimulus material upon which they were based, meaning the reality testing uh, is good, and um, no structural disorganization. I also found there's a capacity for empathy. He had an adequate number of human perceptions, which means he has an ability to establish good interpersonal relationships with people. Did you render any diagnoses based on the results of the Rorschach examination? No, you never render a diagnosis on the basis of any test. A, a test can give you just what I said, all of these different indices, and that could support or not support a diagnosis. But a diagnosis, again, is never based on psychological testing.
Doctor, moving on to the MMPI, if you could explain that test in a general sense. It's 310. I don't know if anyone else needs a break. I do. <laughs> if you get my meaning. With Judge Taylor calling for a break, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrisone. Join us on our next installment as we continue our look at the prosecution's direct examination of Dr. Lewis Schlesinger. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison. <laughs>